In this podcast, I interviewed Dr. Robert Lustig, who is Professor Emeritus of Pediatrics at the Division of Endocrinology at the University of California in San Francisco, otherwise known as UCSF. He specializes in the field of neuroendocrinology with an emphasis on the regulation of energy balance. His research and clinical practice has focused on childhood obesity and diabetes, but we'll be talking about what's really driving ill health and what we can do about it, both on a personal and societal level. He is well known to many for his previous book, Fat Chance, which blew open the lid on sugar, and Hacking the American Mind, which explains how digital technology creating stress plus bad diet leads to addictive behaviors, including eating junk food. Now, his hard-hitting, groundbreaking new book, Metabolical, lays bare the depth of the relationship between the recent and profound perversion of the human diet and its overwhelming health consequences. Rob, it's great to have this chance to learn from you. Uh, my pleasure, Patrick, as always. You know, uh, we're in the fold. <laughs> I really enjoyed your new book, Metabolical. It says on the cover the truth about processed food and how it poisons people and the planet. What would you say are the main diseases that are largely driven by our junk food diet? Well, first of all, know that the American version had a different subtitle. It was The Lure and the Lies of Processed Food Nutrition and Modern Medicine. So I get into way more than just food in this book. Mm -hmm. But the diseases that we are talking about are chronic metabolic diseases. I'll name the top eight for you. Type 2 diabetes, hypertension, dyslipidemia, cardiovascular disease, cancer, dementia, fatty liver disease, polycystic ovarian disease. When it comes right down to it, every single one of those eight diseases are mitochondrial diseases. Every one of those involve defective mitochondria. In different tissues, therefore different symptomatologies. But all of those cluster together. And the reason is because if you've got mitochondria not working in one organ, chances are you've got mitochondria not working in another organ too. So these diseases are all due to defective energy utilization and energy production by specific cell types. And the question is why? and what happened, and why now? And that's what the book deals with. And for those who don't know, the mitochondria are the energy factories within all our cells. And what you've described is well over half of all diseases suffered by modern man. And if you had to, yes. Uh, and, and they're all going up inexorably. They're all yeah, increasing yeah. in, you know, in, in, on mass. And the question is, are these different diseases? And I argue actually they're all the same disease. And if you had to put a ballpark figure on the percentage of risk for these diseases that is to do with nutrition? Uh, I would say that virtually 90% of these diseases are due to nutrition. Now, all of these diseases occurred previously. They all existed prior to the advent of processed food. But if you just look at the uh, incidence or prevalence of uh, any of these diseases, you can actually see the increase starting around 1970 to 1975. And so for the last 50 years, things have just been going skyrocketing out of control for all of these. And they are now breaking the medical bank, both here in the United States and also with the NHS and really around the world. Uh, and no one's gotten a handle on them. And the reason is because there's no pill for this. So talking about money and pills, do you have any idea how much medical research money as a percentage is spent on nutrition rather than drugs? Yeah, about 0.2%. Uh, you know, all the money goes to pharma. And, you know, pharma basically told us they could fix all these things and everyone wants the pill. This is, you know, sort of the way of the Western world. You know, there's a pill for that. And now, what it turns out is that because these are mitochondrial diseases, we don't have any effective methods, mechanisms or medicines to be able to actually influence the mitochondria. And what about medical education? I mean, what percentage of medical education focuses on nutrition and the true causes of these diseases? Well, here in the United States, 
only 28% of medical schools actually have a nutrition curriculum. And within those uh, 28%, a total of 19.6 hours of contact with respect to nutrition, it compared to say, you know, up to 6,000 hours of contact for everything else. So you can see that the amount of time devoted to nutrition is extraordinarily paltry. And to be honest with you, that's on purpose because big pharma controls the medical school agenda. Big pharma underwrites medical school uh, budgets. And in fact, um, medical schools were set up back in 1910 based on the Flexner report, uh, which basically overhauled medical education a century ago to focus on evidence-based medicine rather than folk cures. But in fact, nutrition was not part of the uh, curriculum then. And guess what? It's still not. Now, I want to say that uh, the American doctors are much better educated in nutrition than the British. You said 17 hours. Now, I was talking to a senior lecturer at the uh, Oxford University Medical School, one of the highest rated medical schools in the UK and possibly even you know, up in the top 10 in the world. And they get seven minutes. <laughs> seven minutes. Seven minutes. That's impressive. Yeah. <laughs> Now, there's one line in your book that I absolutely love. You say these diseases are foodable, not druggable. And you describe mm -hmm. eight underlying causes of all our metabolic diseases happening in the mitochondria, as you said. So what are these eight underlying causes in a nutshell? How do they drive disease? Right. So these are specific metabolic processes that occur within all cells. Uh, they, they have cofactors and co-repressors. They have transcriptional activators. They have, you know, very specific molecular mechanisms. And when you trace them all out, what you realize is that none of them have a drug target. On the other hand, they are all susceptible to changes in our food supply. So when you eat right, you will be 110 playing tennis. When you eat wrong, you will be in a wheelchair at age 40 with two stumps on dialysis waiting for your next stroke. Those are your two choices, you know, and then of course, anything in between. And the reason is because the diseases that I've mentioned, type two diabetes, hypertension, lipid problems, cardiovascular disease, cancer, dementia, fatty liver disease, postic ovarian disease are actually not the diseases themselves. They are the symptoms of disease. They're what the ICD-11 codes allow doctors to bill for. So that's what doctors think they're treating, but they're not. They're actually just treating the symptoms. For instance, the high LDL, that's the symptom of the disease, not the disease itself. The high blood pressure, that's the symptom of the disease, not the disease itself. The high blood glucose, the symptom of the disease, not the disease itself. We are treating the symptoms, not the disease, which is why none of these phenomena, none of these ICD-11 codes ever get any better. All you do is just keep taking medicines and you end up on polypharmacy and you end up dying of that instead. It's like giving an aspirin to a patient with a brain tumor because they have a headache. Might help the headache, ain't going to do a damn thing for the brain tumor. And so that's what we are doing with all of these diseases. We are mollifying ourselves by thinking we are actually affecting the uh, pathology itself. And we are not. We are just basically papering over the symptoms of those diseases. And that leads us then to, okay, what are the real diseases? So the real diseases, and I call them the hateful or grateful eight, you know, in deference to Quentin Tarantino, uh, the, these eight subcellular pathologies are not known to the general public. To be honest with you, they're often not known to the medical establishment either, which is why I had to write the book. So I'm going to list all eight, and then we can discuss them in turn if you wish. So one through eight. One, glycation, the attachment of a carbohydrate molecule to a protein to affect its functioning and its flexibility. Two, oxidative stress, the release of reactive oxygen species, which can damage lipids and proteins. Three, mitochondrial dysfunction, the inability of mitochondria to process energy all the way through, thus generating liver fat. 
Number four, insulin resistance, the inability to respond to the insulin signal, thereby generating hyperinsulinemia to basically make the liver and muscles do their job and therefore driving chronic metabolic disease because insulin drives um, uh, cell proliferation and uh, uh, cell dysfunction. Number five, membrane instability. So membranes are like balloons. Uh, you know, uh, you can poke a, 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 your finger uh, in a balloon and it will come back. But if you poke it with a pin, it will rupture. And so the same thing happens to neurons and you can rupture neurons if they are not, if you, if the materials that the membranes are made of are not uh, what we call membrane fluidity and allow for that uh, resilience uh, to, uh, to uh, uh, distortion. Number six, inflammation. And inflammation can be anywhere in the body, but the particular brand of inflammation that goes with, along with chronic metabolic disease is gut inflammation. Inflammation from the intestine, a phenomenon which we refer to as leaky gut. The, uh, the inability of the uh, intestinal barrier to be able to hold back the uh, cytokines, the lipopolysaccharides, the whole bacteria from reaching the systemic circulation. You know, your gut is supposed to be outside your body. But in fact, if you have leaky gut, you know, different contents spill into your systemic circulation, set up shop, say, in the liver and drive uh, insulin resistance uh, and systemic inflammation. Number seven, methylation. So your DNA is not supposed to have very many methyl groups on it, but the more methyl groups, the less well your DNA gets transcribed and that can cause cellular dysfunction as well. And finally, number eight, kind of my favorite, autophagy. Autophagy is like garbage night for the cell. So as your cell works during the day, it creates garbage, protein aggregates, lipid peroxidation products, uh, dysfunctional mitochondria, all of which have to be cleared out in order to keep the uh, uh, cell running uh, at, at peak efficiency. And if you don't clear those out, basically what you end up doing is building a house on sand and ultimately the thing collapses, the cell dies and you die. Um, so getting rid of the junk each day is absolutely essential. That's why you sleep is that's garbage night for the brain is while you sleep. That's when all of the uh, uh, defective mitochondria and lipid uh, 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 peroxidation products all get carried away. So these eight are what keep your cells in tip top running condition. And unfortunately, um, ultra processed food because of its inherent problems of high sugar, low fiber, actually precipitate virtually every single one of those uh, in, on a daily basis, thus driving chronic metabolic disease in all of us. Now, as a nutritionist, you've just described what should be the essential uh, uh, you know, content uh, taught to nutritionists. I think glycation, sugar, low GL diet, Oxidative stress, I think antioxidants, mitochondrial function, I think many things, but certainly vitamin C, B vitamins, magnesium, insulin resistance, I think high carb diets, getting the carbs down, membrane stability, I think omega-3, not just mm -hmm. omega-3, but omega-3, Infl inflammation, I think natural anti-inflammatories, I think about food intolerance as well with the leaky gut. Uh, methylation, I think about B vitamins and the tremendous importance of B12, which, by the way, you know, does reduce an awful lot with age, not just because of what we eat, but yep. malabsorption and autophagy. I really like that you mention uh, autophagy. And I want to ask you a specific question there, because I came across Volta Longo's uh, very interesting yes. fasting mimicking diet. Five right. days, 800 calories, generally quite low protein and generally not too much dairy and meat. Uh, designed to mimic autophagy, or autophagy, as you say. Right. And then what I did was to add an additional two days at the end to come out of that onto a low GL diet. And we literally just finished two weeks ago um, our third retreat uh, with 17 people. And what happened was we, we don't measure their weight at the end of five days because there's what we call the Atkins cheat, which if you totally avoid carbs, your glycogen stores... Uh, deplete and you store water with your sugar. 
So we want to introduce carbs back so the glycogen stores reload and you don't have the water cheap. But basically, when we did that, um, we got an average uh, weight loss of six pounds. The greatest loser was 11 pounds. We've now done this three times. And uh, I have been called delusional. And the reason I've been called delusional, we follow these people up a week later and a month later, and they keep their weight loss and they leave feeling absolutely fantastic. And the reason I'm called delusional is that if you lose uh, six pounds in effectively six days, um, you have to burn off 24,000 calories to get that much fat loss. And by the way, we measure body fat percentage, so we know it's not muscle, it's fat. And we're already giving people 800 calories for five days, so they're not hungry. So am I delusional? How can this happen? Well, it's very simple. Your mitochondria are working better. The bottom line is that, you know, first of all, I'm trying to kill the calorie. You know, that's my job in life is, you know, I am the unofficial, you know, executioner for the concept of the calorie. It was a, you know, problem when it started and continues to be a problem. And the fact that, you know, virtually the entire medical and dietary establishment are still hooked on calories as being the major issue is exactly why I had to write this book is to basically provide all the evidence that demonstrates that calories are the problem. They're not even remotely close to the solution. Um, you know, bottom line is that if your mitochondria are dysfunctional, you are not burning calories like you're supposed to. So those things that cause your mitochondria to be dysfunctional have nothing to do with calories. They have everything to do with the quality of the diet. And it turns out that there is one particular mitochondrial toxin, which is in all the food, and it's called sugar, specifically the fructose molecule. So having nothing to do with its four calories per gram, sugar, and again, that fructose molecule poisons two important enzymes involved in mitochondrial function and mitochondrial biogenesis, which are necessary to create new and fresher mitochondria. The first uh, enzyme it poisons is called AMP kinase, adenosine monophosphate kinase. And this is like the fuel gauge on the cell. And it turns out that a specific metabolite of fructose known as methylglyoxal, which is the breakdown product of dihydroxyacetone phosphate. So it can occur with glucose too, but it occurs way more with fructose. Inserts itself into the active site of AMP kinase in the gamma subunit. And actually because it's an aldehyde, methylglyoxal, it binds to one of three arginines in that active site and basically renders that AMP kinase molecule useless. That AMP kinase is necessary for mitochondrial biogenesis and to create new mitochondria. So basically you end up with only old defective mitochondria, which are very good at generating reactive oxygen species, but not so good at actually burning energy and making ATP. So that's the first uh, way that sugar is a mitochondrial toxin. And the second way was just revealed um, two years ago in, from Ron Kahn's lab. The first author is Softic, and it was in cell metabolism. And what they showed was that fructose inhibits directly an enzyme called ACADL, A-C-A-D-L, acyl-CoA dehydrogenase long chain. This is necessary in order to be able to uh, allow mitochondria to engage in fatty acid oxidation. And so if you can't oxidize fatty acids, then you can't create enough ATP. And so you end up with mitochondrial dysfunction on that basis as well. Lastly, processed food, particularly high sugar food, also high protein food will generate a lot of uric acid. And uric acid has been shown to uh, affect um, uh, malonyl-CoA, it causes a buildup of malonyl-CoA, and malonyl-CoA has been shown to inhibit the enzyme carnitine palmitoyl transferase 1, which is the shuttle uh, for, uh, carnitine is the shuttle for fatty acids into the mitochondria, and it has, they have to be regenerated after each shuttle in uh, by CPT1. So if you inhibit CPT1, you are also you know, causing decreased mitochondrial efficiency. So three, two direct effects on the mitochondria and a third indirect effect on the mitochondria, 
all leading to mitochondrial disease, mitochondrial dysfunction, decreased ATP generation, brain fog, leaky gut, uh, 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 cardiac dysfunction and, you know, uh, ultimately cardiac failure, um, decreased uh, uh, insulin secretion at the level of the pancreas, and basically you fall apart. Now you're giving fructose a very bad rap, like the, it sounds like the devil. Only because it deserves it. In the machine, but of course, our natural diets, fruits, etc., um, they contain fructose. Is it, uh, are you against any food that contains fructose or is it really to do with the level that the liver can, uh, can deal with? Ultimately, it's what the liver sees. Now, the question is, can you mitigate what the liver sees? And the answer is yes, you can very easily. It's called fiber. So fruit, everyone asks me, well, what about fruit? Fruit has fructose, but it has way more fiber. If you actually look at a fructose to fiber scattergram, which our colleague David Gillespie in Australia actually created, it turns out that the more fructose that a, any given foodstuff has, the more fiber it has as well. An example, sugar cane. Okay, it's a stick. You can't even chew the damn thing. It's so fibrous. So even though it's got lots of sugar in it, okay, it's got way more fiber and that fiber actually mitigates how much the liver sees because the fiber in these fruits forms a gel on the inside of your duodenum. So, and you need both. You need soluble and insoluble fiber. You need both. Together, the insoluble fiber, like the cellulose, like the stringy stuff in celery, forms a lattice work or a fishnet, if you will, on the inside of your duodenum. The soluble fiber, like the pectins, like what holds jelly together, or the inulin, are globular. They plug the holes in that lattice work, and together they form a secondary barrier that prevent fructose, glucose, simple uh, starches from making their way from the duodenum into the portal vein, and thereby protecting the liver from the onslaught, from the tsunami of all of that carbohydrate coming in. Thus, your liver is not seeing the fructose load that you uh, uh, presented, you know, it with because even though you consumed it, even though it passed your lips, if you didn't absorb it, your liver didn't see it. And if your liver didn't see it, it won't get sick. So the first goal of food is to protect the liver. The second goal of food is to feed the gut, feed that microbiome. And if you don't absorb it early, then that fructose will go further down the intestine where it will feed your microbiome instead of feeding you. Therefore, even though you consumed it, you didn't get it. So when you consume your sugar with fiber, that turns out to be sugar for your bacteria, not for you. Now, if Dr. doctors Burkitt and Trowell are still alive, appropriately named, because in the 70s, they went around the world collecting stool samples, and they realized that uh, countries that had uh, very frequent and a little bit more uh, less formed stools had very small hospitals and they identified fiber as the critical factor. So they would love to know what you're talking about. Now, Professor Paul Kenny's work at Mount Sinai talks about feeding rats either a high sugar diet, they gain weight, but perhaps not as much as you might expect, or nothing but fat, a high fat diet, similar effects some weight gain. But when he fed them half sugar and half fat, they couldn't stop eating. It was like their apostat switched off and they binged and they very soon had the symptoms uh, or the underlying processes of metabolic syndrome. So what do you think about that? Is there a combo that makes junk food particularly seductive and dangerous to us? Absolutely. Absolutely. So the combination of sugar and fat together is really the big, the big issue. Sugar is a problem on its own. Fat is not a problem on its own. One of the reasons sugar is a problem on its own is because it generates an insulin response. The glucose generates an insulin response and the fructose generates liver fat, which causes insulin resistance. So you get both insulin secretion and insulin resistance. So sugar is a problem by itself. Fat is not a problem by itself. Fat does not generate an insulin response. 
fat does not go to the beta cell and tell the beta cell to release uh, uh, insulin. And in addition, fat is uh, handled by the liver completely differently than sugar. Fat is incorporated into LDL rather than VLDL. So different molecule and the uh, liver has a much greater capacity for creating LDL than it does for dealing with sugar, having to turn that into VLDL. I'm talking so, cholesterol here. That's right, LDL cholesterol. So it's unlikely that fat will overwhelm the liver's capacity to metabolize it. Whereas it's easy for sugar to overwhelm the liver's metabol uh, uh, capacity to metabolize it. So fat in and of itself does not cause a problem. However, if you mix the two, and that's called a chocolate chip cookie, now what you've done is you've provided the sugar to overwhelm mitochondrial function. You've provided the fat in order to, number one, increase the salience of sugar, because everyone would rather have a chocolate chip cookie than a pixie stick. You know, I mean, just in terms of the... Um, uh, uh, we don't have pixie sticks system. in the UK. <laughs> well, that's good for you. Good for you. <laughs> um, but, it, you know, it's basically you know, point, cotton yeah. candy, cotton candy, if yeah, you will. Yeah, yeah. You have cotton candy, I think. We understand. Uh, we understand. Yeah. Straight sugar. By the way, one thing I noticed with Paul Kenny, at least from the, the sort of the press photographs, is that these rats appeared to be diving into cheesecake. And it got me thinking because, of yeah. course, you know, milk's not its purpose is growth. I mean, that's its function. It makes little animals turn into big animals. It is therefore addictive. I mean, you basically the, the baby gets addicted to the breast. It produces caseomorphines. And it made me wonder if the perfect junk food for absolute addiction and repeat sales is not just fat and sugar, but also stick in a little bit of uh, uh, casein, milk proteins. I'm not sure if that's true or not. I will tell you that Junior's Cheesecake in New York City is very addictive. It is my go-to if when I want to absolutely completely, you know, throw, throw caution to the wind. It, you know, by, I, I am, I, if you show me a piece of Junior's Cheesecake, okay, I will not be able to turn it down under any circumstance. So maybe there's some truth to it, but I can't actually demonstrate any empiric data that says that other than my, my own, uh, my own uh, personal feelings now, about it. In your book, it's, you say it's more about insulin than sugar. That's the problem. It is way more about insulin. In fact, in fact, it's all about insulin. Insulin is, you know, considered the diabetes hormone. Yes, diabetics take shots of insulin. Really, the way you need to think about insulin is insulin is the energy storage hormone. Whatever you don't burn, you have to store, and insulin is the way you store it. And the question is, what cell types respond to the insulin signal? And the answer is. The liver responds to the insulin signal. That's true. I'm not saying it doesn't. There are insulin receptors on the liver. And when you don't have insulin receptors on the liver, you are diabetic. So without question, you know, the liver responds to the insulin signal. The brain responds to the insulin signal as well. And lastly, the adipose tissue responds to the insulin signal. Those are the three. The rest of the body, not so much. You know, we always say insulin is how you get glucose into cells. Most cells have the capability of moving glucose into the cells without insulin, including, for instance, muscle. Because if, you if, mus if insulin was required for muscle uptake of glucose, then all diabetics would be paralyzed. So, and that's not true. In fact, they, their muscles work just fine without insulin. And the lower the insulin, the better the muscles work. So, in fact, insulin is required for glucose transport really in only three organs, liver, brain, and adipose tissue. And when you overdo your insulin, you have problems in all three. Mm, that's uh, very, very interesting. Cholesterol, LDL, you're talking about that. So are you saying that high cholesterol is a consequence, not the cause? And what is it that makes the cholesterol go up? So... Dietary fat raises LDL. I don't argue that. Without question, dietary fat raises LDL. It did back in the 1970s when we first discovered LDL, Brown and Goldstein, and it does today. The question is, which LDL? Turns out there are two. 
not one, two. Now, when you measure LDL cholesterol on a standard chem panel at your doctor's office, you are measuring both at the same time and you can't tell the difference between the two. Turns out one of those LDLs is not that dangerous. It's sort of cardiovascularly neutral. And that LDL is called large buoyant or type A LDL. And that's what dietary fat raises. Dietary fat raises your large buoyant LDL. No issue. I, you know, totally agree. Um, plenty of data to support it. This was first demonstrated by Ron Krauss, uh, who was the uh, chairman of the nutrition committee of the American Heart Association. And he's just across the bay here in, uh, in Oakland. Uh, so I know, and I know him quite well. So it is true that dietary fat raises your large buoyant LDL. Turns out though, your large buoyant LDL is essentially cardiovascularly neutral. And the reason it's neutral is because number one, it's buoyant, it floats, it doesn't sink. So it gets carried along with the laminar flow through the arteries and arterioles. And number two, it's um, large. It's so large, it can't get under the surface of the um, endothelial cells in the vasculature to start the foam, forma foam cell formation process, which ultimately leads to cardiovascular plaques. So while not being good for you, these large point LDL are certainly not bad for you. They are ways of transporting cholesterol around the body for, for its needs in other places. Now, there is a second LDL. It is called small dense or type B LDL. This is the atherogenic particle. This is the particle that causes the heart disease. And the reason is because it's dense. It doesn't float. It sinks. It doesn't get carried along by laminar flow. And it's small. It does get under the surface of the endothelial cells to start the foam cell formation process, which then leads to the cardiovascular plaques. And even if you don't believe that, it is definitely a marker for the atherogenic process. Even the people at Harvard who don't believe in small dense LDL agree that its presence is a marker for the atherogenic process, even if it's not the primary particle itself. Bottom line, what makes small dense LDL go up? Answer, carbohydrate, and in particular, sugar. That's the bad guy, and that's what we want to get down. And the way to do it is cut the sugar out of your diet. So rather than taking statins, so what's your view on blocking cholesterol formation in the liver with statins? It depends on what your disease is. So one out of every 500 people, which is not insignificant, that's still a lot of people, are either a heterozygote or homozygote for familial hypercholesterolemia. This is a real honest to goodness genetic disease. We're still working out the genetics, but basically if you, are, if you only have one allele or no alleles, you're gonna get a heart attack, okay? No ifs, ands, or buts, you're gonna get a heart attack. And so statins will reduce the LDL in those patients and reduce risk for heart disease. So primary prevention of heart disease with statins for patients with familial hypercholesterolemia is a must. No argument. If you have FH, you need a statin and a low-fat diet to boot. But that's only one in 500. What about the rest of the people? Turns out they don't have FH. They have something called FCH, familial combined hyperlipidemia. And you can find this on your lab slip because not only will your LDL be high, but your tri serum triglyceride will also be high. All right. Those patients with FH, their uh, LDL will be in the 300 range, but their triglycerides will be low. The patients that you, uh, you, most of the patients, uh, the patients with FCH, they have a high LDL probably in the 150 to 200 range but they will have high triglyceride as well, often somewhere between 100 and 200. So if you have a, a combination of both high LDL and high triglyceride, you have a different disease. You don't have FH. 
and statins are not going to work for you because getting your LDL down is not the issue. LDL has a hazard risk ratio for heart disease of 1.3. Triglycerides, this other molecule in your blood, has a hazard risk ratio for heart disease of 1.8. Triglycerides are way more dangerous than LDL. Those patients who have high triglycerides, they need their triglycerides down. And statins don't do a damn thing to triglycerides. If anything, they actually raise them. So getting your triglycerides down becomes job one. And statins can't do it. So how do you get triglycerides down? Well, the best way, get rid of the sugar. Second best way, fish oil. Third best way, fibrates. Those are the three ways to get your triglycerides down when they are high. What about alcohol? Oh, absolutely. And alcohol is a famous contributor to hypertriglyceridemia in the same way sugar is. So yeah, if you're on, if you're uh, consuming alcohol and your triglycerides are high, you got to cut the alcohol. No argument. What does lipoprotein A have to do with these different uh, LDLs and so on? They don't have that much to do with it. LP little a is its own molecule. It is a bad guy. It is very sticky. And if you have LP little a and it's high, then you have to deal with that. And the problem is we don't have good medicines for that. That is its own uh, cardiovascular risk factor separate from this whole LDL triglyceride thing. And, and unfortunately LP little a is a, you know, real thorn in most doctors sides because we don't have good methods for dealing with it. I heard, I don't know if it's true, that um, some labs measuring LDL actually are not distinguishing and that some of that LDL measurement is lipoprotein A. Is that true? It could be. Yes, it could be. That's possible. And Linus Pauling spent the last decade of his life pretty much focusing on lipoprotein A uh, with some very interesting work on vitamin C. But when I, 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 vitamin C and lysine, he was into for lowering lipoprotein A. But lately I saw the uh, studies of vitamin C and niacin B3 were actually effective in lowering lipoprotein A. Well, that may be, but unfortunately, niacin has been pulled off the market for all side effects. So maybe, you know, we'll find something better in the future, but right now that's kind of, you know, in limbo. I love niacin and that wonderful blush. Anyway, we'll talk about that. <laughs> yeah, well, well that, that, bl- <laughs> that blush gets people into a lot of trouble. <laughs> now, uh, last month we saw um, adu- uh, adumanukub, a so-called amyloid protein blocking drug cleared for dementia treatment, despite no evidence of cognitive benefit, nor any evidence of reducing brain shrinkage. And I recall when we met Professor David Smith, you and I at the Reclaim Your Brain conference, he showed us studies uh, giving homocysteine lowering B vitamins versus placebo. And actually what he showed was an 88% reduced brain shrinkage in the Alzheimer's areas of the brain and 70% of those given the B vitamins, and I want to emphasize these were people with raised homocysteine, which is very common, uh, who were also sufficient in omega-3, 70% ended up with a clinical dementia rating of zero, which this drug hasn't done at all. So it sounds a little bit like statins, not dealing with the root cause. I'd love your opinion on that. But I'd also sure. like, like your opinion because you don't say much about this in the book, Uh, on that methylation in relation to raised homocysteine and the possibility that there's another factor, not just sugar, that's driving dementia, which might be malabsorption of B12 in older people. And all possibles, Patrick, and we don't have the data for those yet, unfortunately. So that's one of the reasons why I don't mention it. But let me, uh, you know, you had multiple things in your uh, question. So let me try to piece them out. The new monoclonal antibody, um, it is targeted at the the tangle, the neurofibrillary tangle. It's targeted at the amyloid protein and, uh, you know, how uh, amyloid and tau ultimately, you know, form these these plaques and tangles. The problem is that the plaque and tangle is the horse out of the barn. It's already, the, the problem's already occurred. The question is, why do the plaques and the tangles form in the first place? And the reason is because the neuron okay, is a very high energy uh, utilizer. It needs its mitochondria to be at peak performance all the time. One of the things 
that the ATP that the mitochondria generate do is they keep the proteins in the brain in their alpha helical configuration, keeping them basically soluble. If you deprive the neuron of energy, if you somehow poison those mitochondria, or if you somehow reduce blood flow, what happens is there's not enough ATP to keep those alpha helices in their normal configuration. And what happens is they beta sheet, they collapse. And when they collapse, they become insoluble. And that's ultimately what starts the plaque formation process. And then you know, they sort of pile on. Once one becomes uh, a beta sheet, then more become beta sheets. And now you've got a tangle. And, you know, the map, the amyloid and the map two are all, you know, collapsible. And that's why, uh, map two, sorry, the tau become collapsible. And that's why you end up with these tangles. So trying to clear out the tangles isn't actually changing the mitochondrial function. And that's where the problem exists. That's, that's the root cause of the problem in Alzheimer's. And we're dealing with the result rather than the cause with this uh, 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 monoclonal antibody. And so I think that's the reason why the data are so inconclusive and so poor is because we're not actually dealing with the root cause of the defect in Alzheimer's disease. So I anticipate that this drug is not going to be very useful or successful in the long term. And that's what the data that basically demonstrate. The reason it got approved is because we got nothing else. 140 different Alzheimer's drugs over the last 20 years, all deep sixed, all basically shown to be ineffective. And because Alzheimer's continues to go up so rapidly and is such a devastating disease and is chewing through so much of healthcare that the FDA was under enormous pressure to approve something. And nine, so that, pe nine people in their advisory group voted against it. Well, uh, that's only, pretty bad. Only one voted for it. And uh, as you say, 140 failed trials. Normally when you have a theory and you test it a, over a hundred times and it fails every time, you say it's a busted flush. Yes. Well, unfortunately, that's Einstein's theory of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. We've been trying to treat Alzheimer's pharmacologically, you know, for the, for the last, you know, 40 years. And, you know, we always come up with the same, uh, you know, negative result. You know, you'd think that people would start thinking outside the box. My colleague, Dale Bredesen, wrote the book, The End of Alzheimer's. Now, he has taken an enormous flack for it, and I think inappropriately. Uh, so I think that the flack he's uh, uh, gotten is because of the title of the book, because obviously, clearly, it's not The End of Alzheimer's. And he didn't actually title it that. The publisher did, and I know because his publisher was my publisher, and I know how it works. Um, the bottom line is that he has demonstrated that the things that will help mitigate, either stop the process or potentially even reverse the process are all things that have nothing to do with medicines. Yeah. They have to do with food, they have to do with exercise, they have to do with um, uh, pollution and you know, uh, uh, exposure to uh, um, uh, toxins in the environment, et cetera. Um, the problem, of course, is all of those things are hard to do, especially when you don't understand what you're doing. And I feel terrible for Dale because I think he's right. And he's basically been lambasted and chastised for it. Mm. Um, so uh, I think there's, there's a big problem in the Alzheimer's community dealing with the real issue. Now, Stephen Cunane's work in Canada, I found very interesting. He took people with pre-dementia, mild cognitive impairment, and he actually uh, didn't use diabetics, just to not complicate the picture. And what he did, I don't even think he really changed their diet, but he gave them two tablespoons of what we call C8 oil. And C8, uh, fats are chains of carbons, and we call medium chain triglycerides anything that is 6, 8, 10, or 12 long. And he took the C8 oil which most specifically helps, or the liver can make ketones from it. And he demonstrated that the neurons, the brain cells, uh, which were under firing uh, you know, from glucose, 
there was 230% more energy generated in those neuronal mitochondria. And consequently, people's uh, cognition got better. So we're talking here in the zone of, of cells that may be messed up in their glucose metabolism, possibly uh, the benefit of giving them a different fuel. Uh, in other words, ketones. What's your take on all this and ketogenic diets? There's no question that ketones are better used by the brain than glucose is. No argument. We've known about this since the 1920s when we gave, uh, 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 you know, when we started the ketogenic diet in uh, chronic epilepsy patients. Um, we also learned that patients who had seizures who were diabetic, that during their diabetic ketoacidosis, their seizures actually stopped because their brain was running on ketones rather than glucose. So we know that ketones are a preferential source for the brain. No argument. Totally agree. The question is whether or not a medium chain triglyceride, because it can be metabolized to ketones in the liver, will serve that purpose. And the answer to that is it could or it could not. And it all depends on your insulin. If your insulin is high, those medium chain triglycerides will not be turned into ketones because insulin will suppress ketogenesis. It will suppress ketogenesis at the fat cell and it will uh, uh, suppress ketogenesis at the liver. So you have to be insulin sensitive and you have to have low insulin levels in order to be able to experience the turning of medium chain triglycerides into ketones. I'm not saying you can't, you can, but the conditions have to be right and you have to be insulin sensitive. Well, the fact of the matter is that 88% of America today are insulin resistant, have metabolic dysfunction with high fasting insulins. This is a disaster. And the reason is because they all have fatty liver. And the reason they have fatty liver is because of their sugar. So if you want ketones to work, if you want things like C8 to work, you have to actually get insulin sensitive first. In other words, you can't just add ketones. You have to fix the diet. You maybe just that, have maybe, to keep fixing the diet. Yeah. Okay. There is no way around it. You have to fix yes. the diet. And maybe that's why for the purpose of the study, he didn't use diabetics. Um, but, Probably. Of, but of course, if you go onto a high fat, low carb ketogenic diet, one of the effects of it is it starts to reverse that insulin resistance. So Indeed. Yeah. And that's yeah. why the ketogenic diet works to reverse type two diabetes as yeah. shown by Verta health. My only question is not, you know, does the ketogenic diet work? It does. I, I mean, I'm very, very comfortable saying the ketogenic diet works to reverse type two diabetes 80% of the patients that Verta Health has worked with have been able to come off their insulin, come off their oral hypoglycemics, et cetera. I'm totally, uh, I, I, I'm in agreement and I understand it. That's not my question. My question is, does everyone need to do that? Are there gradations? Are there shades of gray? Is it possible that just getting rid of sugar would do the same? Okay, the thing about the ketogenic diet is you're also getting rid of sugar. So maybe the ketogenic diet works both ways. Maybe it works because it's improving insulin resistance and because of the uh, ketogenesis and the fact that ketones are preferred substrate for the brain. Maybe so. Um, or could you just get rid of sugar and do just as well? Because that would be a whole lot easier to do. I don't know the answer to that yet. And we are actually uh, uh, proposing studies right now with a donor to try to answer those questions. Now, there's one issue, one favorite nutrient of mine that you don't uh, really cover in your book. And I say that having been the student of Linus Pauling, and that is vitamin C, because the, the essential thrust of your book, which I totally get and agree with entirely, is you've got to change the food that you eat. But the interesting thing about vitamin C, as you know, unlike every other vitamin, um, is that all animals make it. And they make it in large quantities, in several grams. We, us primates, and a few others, like the guinea pig and bats, don't make it. And what turned Linus Pauling on, uh, the genius chemist, was that animals that don't make vitamin C are much more susceptible to viral diseases, and also most, not all, cancers. And a gorilla, for example, will eat 4.5 grams a day. Now, if you turn to a person and say, you should eat more vitamin C, 
they obviously think of drinking, you know, orange juice or something yes. like that. But <laughs> right. you, you couldn't eat what a gorilla eats or even half of what a gorilla eats because you're not doing enough exercise. In other words, we don't expend the calories and therefore we don't, I hate to use that word, um, but therefore we don't eat enough quantity. So right. I, I find that, you know, quite a compelling argument to follow what animals make especially in viral diseases. So I did want to ask you about vitamin C, whether you supplement it yourself, whether, you take, whether you take it more when you're virally infected. I also want I to ask, you don't. <laughs> okay, how much do you- You take vitamin C, I take a thousand milligrams a day. I, okay. I, take, I take three supplements. Yeah. Okay, now I'm gonna be very honest with you, Patrick. I am yeah. not a big supplement fan. Yes, I know that. Okay, and I say so in the book and I say why I'm not a big supplement fan. Um, Supplements work for nutrient deficiencies. Supplements do not work for nutrient excesses. So if you're vitamin D deficient, you have rickets, you need vitamin D. As an endocrinologist, I have taken care of a whole boatload of kids with rickets over my career, and it works. So if you're vitamin D deficient, you need vitamin D. If you are omega-3 deficient, you need omega-3s. And a lot of people are omega-3 deficient because where do you get omega-3s? Fish and flax. And not just any old fish, it has to be wild fish because it's the algae that make the omega-3s. The fish eat the algae, we eat the fish. We get our omega-3s third hand, okay? If you're eating other, uh, if you're eating um, farm-fed fish, you know, uh, corn-fed fish, you're eating omega-6s, not omega-3s. So we are almost uniformly across the board as a population, omega-3 deficient, unless we live at a coast and eat lots of fish, uh, or unless you're eating a whole lot of flax, which also is pretty rare. So that's a nutrient deficiency, and that causes membrane instability. And so I take omega-3s for just that reason. So I take vitamin C uh, because we are relatively vitamin C deficient. Also, I have rosacea and vitamin C has been shown to be one of the things that helps rosacea by stabilizing collagen. And so I take, so I take vitamin C, vitamin D and omega-3s because those three things help my uh, inability to be able to generate enough, a high enough level on my own. Now, if I use your logic, which is uh, the purpose of taking a vitamin, vitamin uh, is to deal with a deficiency. Um, what we know in COVID, uh, I'll, give you, I'll give you two examples here. One is the Colorado Intensive Care Unit uh, actually can predict who survived and who didn't survive from their vitamin C level. I went into a very uh, a lead intensive care unit here in uh, Chelsea and Westminster in London. I gave them vitamin C sticks, urine sticks, because basically, once you get sufficient in your tissues, you will excrete some. And they therefore increase their dose from one to six grams because they found that their COVID patients, you know, one gram was not enough, two grams, three, four, five, they had to get up to six to get there. In China, they've actually mandated in their critically ill people, um, uh, a 12 grams intravenous vitamin C. And they did a randomized control trial which showed 80% less mortality in the critically ill on ventilators given vitamin C. So I would say that your logic, which is give it when you're deficient is true, but viral diseases and certainly the final stage of COVID, which is sepsis is inducing profound deficiency of vitamin C. And that's why it works. What's your take on that? I don't have a take because I don't know the data well enough okay. to be, have a take, you know, so I, I can't answer that question. What I can say is the same phenomenon that you just talked about with vitamin C has also been shown with vitamin D mm -hmm. and vitamin D seems to have, uh, you know, a relationship to mortality from COVID as well. Um, in part because uh, vitamin D is uh, an immune modulator. It binds to toll-like receptor four and thereby uh, reduces the cytokine response. And we know that basically it's, you know, the cytokine storm that kills you. It's not the COVID virus that kills you. And so it's been shown that people with high vitamin D levels seem to survive their uh, 
about with COVID and people with low vitamin D levels do the opposite. And certainly low vitamin D is associated with ultra processed food. And, you know, so that again, these are not causational studies. These are correlational studies and correlation is discovery. We have a long way to go before I can, uh, you know, say that I know that this is the case. And so, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, not up to, you know, saying that I know that I know th that I know this is true. Um, you know, I'm, I'm about the science, you know, you got to prove it to me and I'm, I'm not there. I will send it to you. Uh, the Vegan Society did a very good survey showing that the longest living people are not vegans, um, but pescatarians, people who I eat that. fish and a high plant-based diet, not the vegans and not the meat eaters as such. I think that's exactly right. I think you can live very well on a fish-based diet. Um, I think that's a huge, huge win. I have often said that probably pescatarians are the best uh, fed people because <clears throat> number one, relatively low in saturated fat, high in omega-3s, um, and, uh, and very high in protein, very high in tryptophan also. Um, so I think that vegans should, you know, think about, you know, where they're getting their tryptophan from. Vegetables and fruits are very low in tryptophan. Uh, if they are really truly vegan, you know, they're going to be tryptophan deficient. Um, the, place, the places you get tryptophan are eggs, poultry, and fish. And none of those are on a vegan diet. Now, uh, here we are in this interesting uh, situation where you say you can't fix healthcare until you fix health and you can't fix health until you fix food. Another great soundbite from your book. But here we are with almost a mafia of big pharma influencing government health policy towards patentable, profitable treatments and big mm -hmm. food influencing food policy. The classic example is still the denial that eating too much sugar causes <coughs> diabetes. How do we break these strangleholds? <laughs> Uh, Patrick, from your mouth to God's ears, this is the biggest problem in nutrition is mythology. Okay. Once the mythology is laid down and we've seen what's happened with mythology over the last four years, you know, it's the difference between marketing and propaganda. You know, what's the difference between marketing and propaganda? Marketing is using information to espouse your point of view. Propaganda is using disinformation to espouse your point of view. The difference is the truth. When food companies tell the truth about their products, they're marketing. When they tell a lie about their products, that's propaganda. The problem is the propaganda sticks. And so there are people who still think calories are the answer. They still people th think saturated fat's the answer. And we've done, I don't know, 50 years worth of data to demonstrate that none of these things are true. And that's why I wrote this book is to basically compile the evidence to show that basically we have to debunk all this mythology, all this propaganda that has been fed to us. And yet, you know, we still have the, the deniers. We still have the naysayers. And I've come to realize that naysayers will always be naysayers. You know, like uh, I think, I forget which uh, 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 singer sang, I think it was uh, uh, Taylor Swift said, haters gonna hate. You know, mm -hmm. bottom line is you, you can't fix these people. And so all you can do is try to work on the people who are not yet mythologized, you know, work on the people who are still open to reason. Uh, you will not change the people who are on the other side. What you have to do is you have to develop enough of a cadre of people who do understand to be able to get your point across. In my that's, that's what education is about. Yes, I was going to say that. In my contemplations, uh, I've come down to only two causes, ultimately, of disease, and that is ignorance and addiction. And I think both of those keep people from being able to see the world as it truly is. So, of course, if you, you may know that sugar is bad for you, but you may be addicted to it. You know, so Indeed. It's, and, it's, and I promise you, if you're addicted to it, you don't think that sugar is bad for you. 
Well, sadly, we've come to the end of our time. Um, I hear your pain in the sense of, you know, we know what is killing people and causing them to suffer so badly. And what do you do about it? And what you've done is to write a brilliant book, Metabolical. It is, of course, available on Amazon. But how do we best stay in touch with your brilliant research and discussions? And are you planning to visit the UK anytime soon? Uh, first of all, if you can buy Metabolical at a bookstore, please do. We must support our local bookstores. Bookstores are happiness. All right. I understand the convenience of Amazon, but please, please, please get it at a bookstore. Okay. Support your local bookstores. You need them. We need them. That's number one. Number two, if you want to, you know, know what's going on in my world and understand what's happening with, you know, with, with the resistance, with the fight, if you will, uh, robertlustig.com or metabolical.com uh, are good places to uh, get the information. Uh, and ultimately, am I coming to the UK as soon as I can? Um, I have loads of friends and you know them as well. Patrick. And, um, you know, I have to stump for the book as well in, uh, you know, Hachette uh, has done a very good job of getting it out there and I'm proud of it and I want uh, people to know. And so I need to be there. Um, uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully, you know, maybe the summer or September or sometime soon. We have the same publisher. I'll put robertlustig.com and metabolical.com up on the link for this podcast I really want to express my and everyone listening, I know also immense gratitude for your honesty and your courage and your intelligence in digging deep down into the true causes of diseases and doing what you can to educate people so they don't need to go there. Thank you, Rob, Patrick, so much. Patrick, I'm just doing my job. That's all. Just doing my job, just like you are. <laughs>